Counting the Electoral College Votes and How We Select Our President. Professor Richard Hassan from the University of California, Irvine School of Law, gives us a civics lesson. I'm Lawrence Clady, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, audience. Welcome back. This show comes to you on the backside of a tough day in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol. So we might be a little down tempo today, but I thought a good remedy to that, to some of the struggles we had um, yesterday in Washington, D.C. And of course, this episode will play out the following week, but would be a little information, you know, because knowledge is power. And that's why I'm so pleased to welcome Professor Richard Hassan from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Welcome to the show, sir. Great to be with you. Great. Thank you so much for making the time. You know, I thought, you know, this would be perfect to kind of walk through how we select our president through electoral college process. I think that sometimes gets lost in the media cycle that moves so fast. And you might get 30 seconds on it on one of the major news networks, but nobody really dives into it. And I think it creates a lot of uh, misunderstandings. And so that's why I wanted to do this today. I think that would be a great place to start. And so why don't we do this, Professor? I agonize over these questions. I try to set them up real neatly. So what I'd like to do is kind of go through a high hypothetical to establish our baseline. And then we'll conclude the show by talking about what happened in the Capitol yesterday in terms of casting the Electoral College votes. Does that sound okay? Sure. All right. So let's start from the very beginning. This is the basic question, you know, for uh, those out there that are a little rusty in their constitutional law or those are just, you know, learning this for the first time. The Electoral College, you know, what is it and why do we use it to select our president? Well, it goes back to the founding of the Republic and a compromise among those who are drafting the constitution over how much power to give to the people and how much power to give to the states. And of course, back at the time that the constitution was being written and ratified in the late uh, 18th century, uh, there was a lot less popular voting for people. Uh, Now, of course, we have lots of offices where the people get to choose directly, but we have this vestige where rather than voting directly for president, uh, the constitution gives state legislatures the power to set the rules for choosing presidential electors in each state. Each state has then, each state legislature has then given that power over to voters and voters vote and the electoral college votes are allocated for the winner of each state. There are two states, Maine and Nebraska, where uh, they are not winner take all. They're partially by congressional district, but in, in most other states, if you are the person who gets the most votes uh, among the the populace in uh, the presidential contest, you get all of those states' electoral college votes. Right. So in most states, you have the majority in that state. You get all of the electoral college votes in that state for the most part, except for Nebraska. And, and wasn't there another, is, is Maine one of those ones that's kind of split too? It's, it's Maine and Nebraska, yes. But it's you don't have to get a majority. You just have to get a plurality. That is, you just have to get more than anyone else. You don't have to get to 50% plus one. Okay. Uh, and, and that's significant because sometimes there are third-party candidates and neither the Democrat nor the Republican gets to 50%. Well, that must really throw a wobble in it. So, all right, well, let's go to the elector. So the uh, now who are the electors? Who gets to play this role? And I understand there's some restrictions as to who can be an elector. So the constitution provides that the number of electors equals the number of representatives that a state has in Congress plus two senators. If you're a federal official, you can't serve as an elector. Basically what happens is Each candidate, so in this case, Biden and Trump, would pick a slate of electors. They're looking for loyal people. They're often the um, local uh, elected officials or party regulars, people who can be trusted, and they are chosen as the slate of electors. So if you take a state like Arizona, 
there's going to be a slate of Biden electors and a slate of Trump electors. And when the state is finished counting the ballots, if they find that Biden's won, uh, as he did in Arizona, then the Biden electors are the ones that are certified by the state governor as the electors. And, and if it's Trump, it's the Trump slate of electors. And these people actually uh, meet in every state this time around, despite the pandemic, they met in person except for Nevada, which held its meeting over Zoom. And they meet in state capitals on a date that's set by a, a federal statute. This time around, it was December 14th. They met on that December 14th date. They cast their ballots. That All of that information was transmitted to, uh, ultimately, to the Congress. And it was on January 6th that Congress started counting those votes uh, after they were sent in and um, uh, sent through the National Archives. Okay, so that brings us to this process of certifying that vote. And this is ultimately the last step before you pick your president uh, who won the election. And so let's start with just a clean pass through. I know it's been a long time since we have not had any type of contest to an election, but let's say just in theory, there's a clean vote through. Nobody's disputing anything. It is what it is. There's no disagreements. There's no objections. Just walk us into into that process of certifying these votes state to state. So uh, the first thing that happens is people vote uh, in their respective states, and then uh, you get some unofficial results on election night. And then it takes a few days to try to make sure everything was done properly. Uh, you also, in states like where I am in California, there are so many ballots that are coming in by mail that it takes a, a little more than two weeks to count all of those ballots. And so the, the totals keep changing uh, as the time goes on. And in a very close race, you might not know a winner for a while. But eventually, uh, the numbers are all counted and things are ready to go. If it's a very close race, there might be a recount or there might be a lawsuit this time around, we saw lots of lawsuits, right. uh, almost none of which on the presidential level were successful in, in do, really doing anything. But um, at some point, the certification happens. The state officials say, here's the totals. And then eventually this leads, in the case of the presidential election, to the uh, governors of the state uh, and other state officials signing documents uh, which are transmitted to Congress that indicate uh, who's won that state's uh, electoral college votes, uh, and that then is sent to Congress. So all of this happens in terms of finalizing things in the states on a five-week clock, which is pretty fast if you've got a close election and there's a call for recounts. In Georgia, for example, where there was some controversy the ballots were both recounted by machine and recounted by hand. Uh, and in all cases, it didn't make a material difference in terms of the outcome, you know, very minor differences as they uh, counted these votes. So everything's supposed to be wrapped up within five weeks. There's a, there's a little bit of a cushion built in there. There is a federal set of statutes called the Electoral Count Act, which uh, were created after a disputed election in the 1870s uh, that provides that if a state gets its count done within these five weeks by the so-called safe harbor day, then Congress is not going to challenge uh, votes that are uh, sent in by that date. And, and if there is a conflict and there are multiple slates of electors sent in by state officials because there's some kind of controversy, then the one that is signed by the governor is the one that's supposed to take precedence. 
Okay, and that's what happens on January 6th. They they go through a process by which the, the vice president reads off the electoral votes and they're certified. And then if there's no objections, that's it. They, they certify them right then and there, right? So it's a process and uh, some of the listeners may have uh, seen it or heard it uh, as it was being done on January 6th before it was disrupted uh, by this insurrection at the Capitol. It's a kind of a formality. The vice president serves as like a master of ceremonies. Uh, He says some formal stuff. Then you have two senators, one from each party, two members from the House, one from each party, and they they alternate taking turns reading out the state's electors, what the totals are. And the vice president asks if there are any objections. Typically, there are not objections. And when they're done counting, the tellers, those who are, are keeping track from the Senate, announce the vote totals, and the official president-elect and vice president-elect are chosen. Okay, so that's the clean process without objections that show up for that day on January 6th. So let, let's talk about when there are objections. And so I want to take our time walking through this because I think this is where some of the podcasts I listened to, they were trying to, uh, I was trying to get an idea of how to explain this in a, in a simple way. And I think a lot of the shows that I was listening to for just some, just some ideas, they got into the nuance a little too quickly. So I want to just go one step at a time here, Professor, and I want to talk about what it takes to make an objection to a certification stick. So I know that uh, when there's an objection, you have you know, a member of the Senate and a member of the House object, and then they separate, the houses separate, they go into a debate. So can you start from the very beginning? So you know, the vice president calls it out, now there's some objections. Walk us through how you make an objection stick to the point where now you can't count those votes. So the objection process that's built into that same law, the Electoral Count Act, the one that was passed after the disputed 1876 election, provides for Congress to deal with objections to the counts of electors, but it was written in the context of a concern that there might be a problem, say, in a state government as to who is really in charge. And you might have multiple slates of electors sent in by state officials. You can imagine one coming from the governor, one coming from the state legislature, and they have to decide how to resolve it. As I mentioned, there's a statute that says that in that particular context, the Uh, one sent in by the governor should control, or that you can imagine there are two slates of electors that are sent in by the governor, one earlier, one later, because there's been some information that's come forward, right? Very unusual things that we wouldn't expect to happen in a normal period. The objections that are made are, as they're reading the states alphabetically, if a member of the House wishes to, uh, or a member of the Senate wishes to state an objection, There has to be at least one House member and one senator joining in that objection. And it doesn't matter which state, right? Anybody. Any representative joined by any senator can object. Okay. And so the House and Senate meet together. The vice president announces the certificates have come in from each state and they look okay. And then we find out the totals and then ask if there are any objections. If there's an objection that comes only from a representative or only from a senator, then the objection is not sustained and you go on. If, however, a senator and a representative agree to object and they put their objection in writing, then there's a process by which this meeting of the Senate and the House together temporarily breaks. The Senate and the House meet separately. The rules provide for two hours of debate with no senator speaking or representative speaking for more than five minutes at a time. They they alternate between the, those on one side uh, versus the other. 
And at the end of the two hours, they vote whether or not to sustain the objection. In order for an objection to a state's electoral college votes to be sustained and those votes not to be counted, both the Senate and the House would have to sustain the objection. So if only one voted one way and one voted the other, then the objection would not hold. It, have to, it has to be unanimous between the two bodies. And that's just by a simple majority of both, correct? That's right. And so after they've met uh, to take in those objections on the electors of that state, they come back, they meet again together, they determine what's happened with that objection, and then they move on to the other states and they work their way all the way through until they get to the end of the alphabet. And then they see if some if a candidate has obtained at least a majority of the electoral college votes. Which brings you to the count 270. Whoever gets to 270 will become the next president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, there's some wrinkles even there because imagine that a state is electors are not accepted and there's no alternative slate of electors. There's a question as to whether or not you would remove that state from the denominator to figure out what the majority is of states whose electoral votes are counted. That's something that is not clear and you, you think would be clear. What I want to get into that if they can't certify a particular state, kind of as closing out this section, but I want to get back to the vice president's powers here a little bit. And I think this was something I was getting a lot of conflicting sources, and maybe I just didn't understand. That could very well be. But the vice president, so let's say an example um, where you know there's been some contested issues and the vice president doesn't feel that a particular state followed the Constitution, sort of the Article 2, Section 1 constitutional argument and is concerned about it, but you know the House comes back and says, you know, we're we're going to go ahead and sustain this objection. But the Senate says, no, nah, no, nah, we're fine with it. Does the vice president have any duty or option at that point if they really feel the Constitution wasn't followed when it comes to that particular state's electoral votes? It does not appear to be the case that the vice president would have the power to do anything other than simply serve a kind of ceremonial role in opening the envelopes and calling the question. Uh, there were some who suggested this time that Pence could try to exercise some power. That would not be within the context of the, the rules that are provided in the Electoral Count Act or, or the rules provided in the Constitution. And in fact, Vice President Pence issued a statement where he said that he didn't believe he had any authority to do anything other than open the envelopes and, and announce the results as they went from state to state. Now, what's the difference between Vice President Mike Pence's position here and Richard Nixon in 1960? So I've not studied this in any level of depth compared to some of my uh, election law colleagues. And so I can only speak very generally. There was a question about Hawaii's electoral college votes uh, and when they were later corrected and changed. And the question was uh, how to deal with objections that could have come in uh, from Hawaii and uh, Nixon did not. He accepted the the later set of electoral votes that came in from Hawaii, even though they went against him, and the process moved forward. But uh, in so doing, he said that he was not uh, trying to establish any precedent. And so, you know, when you try to argue from history as to how things are supposed to be handled, uh, this was kind of like a, a one-off situation uh, in 1960. Uh, but it was a situation, as we saw with Pence this time, where uh, you had someone who was a vice presidential candidate, or in the case of Nixon, was going to be a presidential candidate, who is counting votes against his own interest. 
Well, I think you explained that really well, uh, Professor, so I appreciate that. So let's round it out here, uh, last part of this section, which I think is real important, then we'll get to the last question. And so now let's say you've got objections that are sustained by both sides, so the House of Representatives and the Senate, and now you can't certify these votes. And let's say that there's enough states that had an issue with an election, and now you're not getting to 270 for either candidate. As I understand, as I read, this goes through the House what happens then? What do you do with these votes and how do you get around it? If no candidate gets to 270 votes or to a majority, I mentioned this little wrinkle earlier that right. you know, we might be excluding states from the denominator, but if no candidate gets a majority of electoral college votes, then we have what's called a contingent election. The way this would work is that in the House, the House alone would choose the president. They would choose among the top three candidates who have gotten votes. Right now, we, we only have two, but in, in, historically in the past, there, there have been times where more than two candidates have gotten electoral college votes. Uh, they vote for one of the top three candidates, and rather than vote as normal with each representative having a vote, Instead, each state delegation would have a vote. That is, all the representatives from, say, Minnesota would get together and they would get to cast one vote for one of the three candidates on the list. And whoever gets a majority of those votes would then become the president. So it's a system that could potentially uh, lead to stalemate even within states. A state, for example, that has say, an even number of Democrats and Republicans might stalemate, and they might not be able to vote at all. Over on the Senate side, the senators would be choosing the vice president, and each senator would get one vote. That's not something that we saw this time, and uh, you know that would be a system that would, where for the president, it would really depend upon which state had more Democrats or Republicans in that state delegation for you to be able to predict who would be likely to be the next president. All right, Professor. So now that we've established a baseline, can you walk us through kind of the academics here of the Arizona objection and the Pennsylvania objections and how we got to select our new president for the next four years? So when the Congress came to counting the Electoral College votes for president this time, it starts alphabetically, as I said earlier. And when they got to Arizona, there was a senator and a representative who in writing objected to the counting of the Electoral College votes. The chambers separated and met separately on the objections, two hours of debate in each chamber. That was interrupted at one point by the uh, breaching of capital security. Once that was many hours later, when security was restored, the debates continued. In both the Senate and the House, the objections were not sustained. That is, there were many more members who voted against the objections than in favor. And it only took one of the chambers to reject the objections for them to be rejected. It, it, it would take both chambers to agree on an objection. So Arizona's, the challenge to Arizona's electoral college votes was rejected. Then we got to Georgia. For Georgia, there was an objection made by representatives, but no senator joined. Uh, we kept going through the alphabet. We got to Pennsylvania, and uh, when we got to Pennsylvania, there was another senator and representative who agreed to object. There was another separation of the two chambers. The senators agreed that they didn't need to have more debate, and they went straight to a vote. 
in the House, they had two more hours of debate. In both chambers, again, as with Arizona, the Pennsylvania objections were rejected. Uh, We kept going through the alphabet. Uh, There was an objection to Wisconsin, only by a representative, not joined by a senator. And then at about uh, 3.44 Eastern Time a.m., Vice President Pence completed uh, by going through Wyoming, to which there was no objection. Senator Klobuchar announced that Biden and Harris, that team, had uh, officially won as the president-elect and vice president-elect. Well, Professor, thank you so much for giving us that walkthrough, giving us the baseline, and explaining what went on uh, on January 6th. I really appreciate it. It was great to be with you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. And also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com, so you can read those for yourself if you want. I want to thank our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew for making us sound so great. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clivey. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 